Good morning, everybody. You guys are a little asleep, but that's okay. Um, okay, so I have a question for you. You know those people, those people with kids, those people with kids who can do the smallest, most insignificant thing, and they'll freak out about how their kid's a genius. Like their kid could pick their nose and show it to mom and dad, and mom and dad will be like, oh my God, he's going to Harvard. You guys know those people? Ugh. I've become one of those people. Um, my son, Elias uh, James Armstrong, is one year, three months. I want to clarify, he's not 15 months. When you hit the one-year mark, we start saying one year in certain months. He's not 15 months. He's one year and three months. And actually, recently, I've become convinced that little Elias is also a genius. And I post about it all over my social media, so I'm sorry if you feel like I'm spamming you. But this is what he's done recently. I've asked him, I said, uh, you, can, you can literally ask him any question in the world. Kind of. You can ask him any question that has to do with animals and what sounds they'll make. And he'll give you the right answer. So you can go to Elias and you'll say, Elias, what sound does a lion make? And Elias will like kind of curl up a little bit. He'll put his arms up and he'll go, ah. And it's pretty cute. Um, second one, he, you can ask him, Elias, what sound does a puppy make? Now, not a dog. What sound does a puppy make? And he won't say like bark, bark. He'll put his hands up and he'll go, and he literally sounds like a puppy. It's absolutely adorable. And there's one animal that he just hasn't gotten quite down yet. You can ask him, Elias, what sound does a cow make? Now, we read all these books about cows and cows jumping over the moon, and we even say the moon word, moon. He doesn't get it. If you ask him what sound does a cow make, Elias will look at you, and he'll make a sound that I like to describe as a, um, a vacuum cleaner crossed over with helium. And it sounds a little bit like... <laughs> And the crazy thing is that he does it every single time. Like, he's committed to that sound being what sound um, a, a cow makes. Recently, I decided to push my luck a little bit. I said, uh, I want to see if Elias knew what daddy said. So I asked him the question, Elias, what does dad say? Now, clarification, um, my wife did carry this baby for nine months, and she wakes up in the middle of the night, and she feeds him, and she prays for him, and does all the great things. But I'm the fun parent at home. I'm the one doing all the crazy things, breaking all the rules, doing the things you shouldn't do, feeding him cake when he shouldn't have cake, all the fun things. So, you know, we, we dance together, we listen to BTS together, we do hand motions together, we do all of it. For that reason, I expected him to give a very fun, lively, something that reflected me kind of answer. So we ask Elias, Elias, what does Dada say? He looks at me, <laughs> and he goes... Not really the sound I was going for. So fun fact, I have the worst allergies in the world. Every morning when I wake up, I go straight to the bathroom and I blow my nose and I make that horrible, terrible sound trying to get all the nastiness out. And my son has somehow attributed that to what sound daddy makes. I've somehow become an influencer, y'all. My kid gets it. Daddy makes a sound. I'm pretty frustrated by that. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. But it has shown me that uh, in like the small, simple ways, I've been able to influence him. I've been able to have some kind of impact 
on his life, not the impact I want. Hopefully I'll have better impact in the future. But my silly little nose blowing moment every single morning has somehow influenced him. And it's taught me a little bit about the power of influence. That it wasn't something grand that I did. It's something subtle. It wasn't even for him. It was in the bathroom away from him. But somehow he's been influenced. He's been impacted by just that little small thing. I've learned that influence is very similar to that. It's not about status in society or even your social media followers. If you have a little blue tick, does anyone here have a blue tick, by the way? And influencers? Okay, cool. Um, no, influence is measured differently than the way that we might think. It's actually about the impact that can take place in the small ways that we engage with one another, our little decisions, what we stand for, what we do, or perhaps what we don't do. It's our little decisions and how we interact, and that's the kind of stuff that will affect people indirectly and in tangible ways. Without being forceful, without commanding it, we can produce an effect on others all around us. This is influence. It's something simple. It probably happens every single day of your life and we're just not aware of it. Look at it this way. Our impact is a direct byproduct of our influence. I'll say that again. The impact that you're making is a direct byproduct of our influence. Let me tell you something else about influence. There's more. Uh, influence is potentially bigger than we might recognize for something so small. The word that's most commonly used when you ask the top leadership gurus define leadership, they'll break it down to one word, and that word is influence. See, what we see as small moments of impact is influence, and influence is leadership. So in these small moments every day, the things that we do Actually, it's leadership. Leadership is not just for chief executives or presidents on some geopolitical level. Leadership happens here in this room, in our homes, on the grassroots levels. Leadership is in the little stuff. Now, I do understand everybody is not a leader. I, as I was writing this, I was like, I could think of a few people that came to mind that would say, but everyone's not a leader. I get it. Everyone is not a leader. But everyone does impact does make an impact on others in small ways. If me blowing my nose can impact my son, something tells me that in the spaces that you live and work and do what you do, your life probably has an impact that you might be unaware of. And the thing about great leaders is this. They use their influence, they use their impact to better those who are around them for their good. Leadership, when done wrong or actually we examine it, it, it affects our relationships with one another. Think about it this way. In Hong Kong, uh, we do live in a society where sometimes our leadership looks like racing to the top. And it can be a challenge to genuinely, authentically celebrate the success of someone else because we oftentimes view our neighbor as our competition. We focus on our growth and on our own progression, and we can lose sight that the reality of me first sends a message. It feeds a cycle. It can propagate a culture that's actually incompatible with the faith we hold, unless you know, we decide to stick to a deep compartmentalization of our faith in our life. There's a broken system in leadership 
when individual gain is the motivation. Where leadership can become transactional, and our relationships feel like we just use one another. What can this person do for me? And once they're done doing that for me, or once I've gotten whatever advantage I need, I discard or no longer really care about them and their well-being. That's not really the model that our scriptures show us about relationships or about leadership. It's not the Jesus way. Leadership done according to Jesus' model will allow us to impact those in our world and our lives for their own good. So whether you're leading in your schools or in your workplace or in your communities or in your families or wherever, I believe that as we examine Jesus' model of leadership, there's some things we can take away that will impact the way that we impact others. So how does it work? How do we position ourselves to, to follow this Jesus' model of leadership? And what is Jesus' model of leadership? The, the gospel of Mark is a fun gospel. Across two chapters, and actually it's also in Luke and Matthew, uh, but specifically in Mark, across chapters 9 and 10, we have this overall examination of greatness. So what's happening, let's look at starting with Mark 9. You've got the disciples, and they're sitting with Jesus, and they're asking the question, who will be the greatest? And greatness is good. No one really wants to be mediocre. I get that. It's a genuine question. How, how do you define the greatness? Who, who is the greatest? And Jesus looks at them, and he answers them with one of these answers that isn't really an answer. It's one of those Jesus answers that like, doesn't really clarify anything, but he says it and then moves on. So what he says is this. Whoever wants to be first should be last in the servants of all. No, no explanation after that. He just picks up a kid and starts talking about a completely different topic. And then you have Mark chapter 10, where a very famous story that we've all heard, or most of us have heard if you've been here, about a rich young ruler, a guy who's gotten all his affairs in order, comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard Pastor Ellison talk about this question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? This guy's asking the exact same question. And, and Jesus, uh, he looks at Jesus and he tells him, all right, so of all the things I could think of, I've done all the commandments. I know what they are and I've followed them. I've checked them off my list. So how do I get eternal life? Jesus looks at him and gives him an answer that probably isn't what he's expecting. He goes, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, then come follow me. Which... If we think about it practically, that answer doesn't make a lot of sense. This guy is a little frustrated and disheartened. Like, what does my neighbor's well-being and their progress, what does that have to do with my piety, with my faith journey, with my relationship with God? But this is the answer Jesus gives them, and he ends this entire thing uh, in, in chapter 10 and says another one of his famous one-liners. He says, whoever wants to be first must be last. It's the second time in two chapters he's saying the exact same thing. And when we push further and looking towards verse 35 of the same chapter, we have a third example. Thinking about greatness and examining leadership. You have James and John. They come up to Jesus. And as you look at the slide, we'll read Mark 10, verse 35. It reads like this. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Pause. If anyone ever comes up to you and just ask that question, maybe ask them what they want, because that's a bit of a slightly dodgy question. Whatever we're going to ask you, just say yes, is how they're approaching this. So you can kind of infer that something shady is about to go down. 
So what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And I can imagine at this point, Jesus hears this and he does that like face to palm, palm to face emoji thing, hand on the head. He's like, oh, they don't get it. He goes, do, you don't know what you're asking. Like, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? To which, slightly rhetorical question, they say, yes, we can. We're very confident. Yes, we can. Again, Jesus probably puts his palm to his face. He's like, they're not getting it. Um, he goes, well, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the other guys heard about it, the other 10, they became indignant. Fancy word for pretty mad. We're James and John. So here, again, we have James and John, two of Jesus' close disciples who've been walking with him for some time. And what they're doing is they're approaching him for some shady business. They're probably, I imagine, whispering it to him so that the other 10 can't hear it. They're coming to Jesus first, and they're like, Jesus, when you reign, because their expectation is that Jesus is going to reign over all the world as king, when that day comes, can we... Uh, can we get a place? Can we, can we be up top? Can we be some of your chosen people? Can we have a place of leadership, of influence, of impact? Can we be in a position that shows others that we are great? We want a seat at the table. And I think they're operating from the concept of the early bird gets the worm or, you know, when I was in the U.S., we played this game, well, it wasn't really a game, it was more of a lifestyle, where if you're driving in a car or you're going to the car, the first person to say, shotgun, gets to sit up front and everybody else is crammed in the back, right? If you're the first one there, you get the prize. And I, I feel like these disciples are operating from the same place. They're asking Jesus this early on so that they can be in a position of power. And Jesus responds, not answering their question, of course. He, he gives them, he's one of those guys, one of those friends where you ask him a question and then he gives you another question. Somebody did that to me this week and I didn't like it. You know who you are. Um, Anyways, he, 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 he answers them by asking them a question. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with, which is a very confusing sentence. These two things, what do cups and, and baptism have to do with what, Jesus, what leadership is about? Well, well, it's not really anything about leadership. Jesus is actually using these two things symbolically to talk about the journey he's about to go on to the cross. And actually, in this same passage, Jesus has clearly and, and given a clear, detailed play-by-play um, -play almost of what's going to happen to him when he reaches Jerusalem. He tells them that he will be condemned to death, he will be beaten, he will be spit on, he will be flogged, and then they'll actually kill him. And then he will be raised to life again on the third day. So James and John have just heard this, and Jesus says, can you do all these things? And they're like, yeah, 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 we're good, we got it. We can do it. These two are one, either terrible listeners and completely miss what he said, or two, they're grossly overconfident in their own ability. Or three, actually. James and John have the wrong expectation of the coming Messiah, much like everybody else in that time would have. See, they are expecting Jesus to come and rule and reign and be some all-conquering king. And they want to seat at that table. They don't understand that the kingdom of God is nothing like the, 
the, the culture of the day, the Greco-Roman way of power and leadership. And Jesus is literally about to turn their understanding of ruling and leadership and greatness on its head, give them a completely different understanding of what that is to look like. But before he does, I love that, uh, so Mark writes this gospel. He adds that little bit that the other disciples are pretty mad when they hear about what James and John are doing. And, you know, I get it. To be fair, the other 10 were probably just a little frustrated that they weren't the first ones to ask because maybe they would have gotten it. But that's because they knew that's how relationships worked. They knew that's how leadership and greatness operated. Greatness was about getting ahead. If you can get there before the other person, even better. That was the way of operating. Does it remind us of anything in our world and in our culture today? I love that Jesus turns this into a proper teaching moment. He didn't just give them a one-liner. He actually expands on this. In verse 42, he says this. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, important phrase, lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In this statement, Jesus calls his disciples, and, and I think us, to examine our understanding and the norms of leadership and of greatness, and the characteristics that we would attribute to greatness and leadership. See, the Greco-Roman leaders were the ones who were at the top of a top-down system, a largely militaristic, authoritative system that was uh, drenched in deep prejudice and racial undertones. See, these kinds of leaders were the ones who were the wealthiest of the wealthy. They were the ones who had uh, the best reach and the best network and had earned the most and had achieved the most. These guys had, like, they, they had learned everything. They had all the achievements for personal success. They were the privileged individuals, the ones who would be served. Funny how things from then to now hasn't necessarily changed all that much. Greatness can still often today be defined by uh, how much is in your bank account or, or a position of power or, or what tier job do you have in the city? Uh, your personal income, how big your business is, the right people in your specific network somehow gives you worth. Those are the people, those are the things that we look at to understand leadership today. And, and, and when we do that, we run the risk of pretending that because someone has accomplished more, because they have studied more, because they know more people, somehow they have a different and better worth than someone else. In that, we end up neglecting the poor and live in a cycle that is driven. I heard someone refer to it as like a bit of a rat race by personal progress and self-gain. Jesus would look at this in the Greco-Roman culture and, and us today, he would look at the way that we operate, the, the norms of our day, and he would say very, four very powerful words. He would say this, not so with you. Like, that could be them, but not you guys. That's not how you are to live. Don't carry the same broken system as everyone else. Don't build yourself after a leadership model that oppresses those who have less. Don't model yourself after leadership that hurts others. That may be the way of the world, but not in my house. In other words, my kingdom is different. I do want to be clear. Jesus 
I want to talk about what Jesus isn't saying, all right? Jesus is not saying that because you're excellent and you've achieved a lot or you've earned a lot or you know the right people or you have a high degree that all of a sudden you're anti-kingdom of God. He's not pointing to that. He's actually pointing to something a bit deeper. Excellent and achievement and all these things aren't bad things. He's not condemning it. Actually, over the years of church history, theologians have looked at the idea of sin, and this is a really interesting thought, so, so dial in here. They say this, that sin is simply virtue running wild because God has planted in the hearts of every creature an aspiration for significance. It's how he's made us. But unchecked, we tend to bend that good aspiration into a desire to dominate others. We can sometimes get so intoxicated with greatness and succeeding and being the best and being number one, that we only see our value through our progress alone, absent of how others are doing, absent of our neighbors. And in so we diminish the value of others. We look at it as my value comes from not being at the very bottom. And in our desire to make sure we get to the top or somewhere of significance, we accidentally end up pushing down, neglecting, ignoring those who are in need of us. And this happens in church too. I'll give you a fun example. I was listening to a podcast. Um, and, and in this podcast, the person who's talking is a, is a, um, a spoken word kind of rapper artist. And, and she and her friend are both spoken word rapper people. And they rap and they speak words and they do it in really cool ways and people really love it. And so they are hoping one day that they'll get signed. They're doing all these big performances. They're performing in church. They love Jesus. They're good church people. And her friend ends up getting a record deal. And, and I love how honest she is because the reality is that if we were as honest, we might realize we're in the same boat. Her friend got the record deal and even though all the things we church people do is for God's glory, it made her feel some kind of way. She was bothered. Jealousy and comparison kind of snuck in. And what, what should be something worth celebrating for another because it's all for the kingdom of God ends up being something that divides friendship from neighbor to competition. Jesus would look at our church and our world today and he would say, not so with you. And as followers of Jesus, we are meant to live in a way that's not even just a little bit different, like fully different like a full 180, like contrary, opposite to this method. His kingdom is different. It's not just different, it's upside down. It's a great word people use to describe it. So if we look at verse 43, um, you'll see on the screen, he starts off by saying this word, instead, just kind of showing us how serious, like unlike this, you could substitute, unlike what we see in leaders who exercise their authorities over others and, and lord over them, instead of being that way, unlike that, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For the son of man, which the king, God himself, did not come into the world to be served by people, but to serve, and not just serve, to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Greatness means becoming a servant. To get ahead means becoming a slave. Great leaders are those who focus on others. They are slaves of all. This is, again, opposite to what we see, what we experience as a norm. Leadership isn't about running to the front. I heard a pastor say this. Leadership is actually a race to the back of the line. I want us to look at the words that Jesus uses in this passage because he used some pretty strong words, words that we probably would never want to refer to ourselves as in regular context. So the first word he uses here is servant, which is the word diakonos. And it means a couple of things. Um, servant can refer to the, the house servant that actually brings the meal and prepares the table and sets things up for the other person's benefit with no actual uh, progress of their own. That's one definition. That's probably an easy definition. We all know that. You didn't need to see it in Greek to understand what a servant is. But a servant, the reason I put this word up there is because there's another word that's somewhat common to the Christian folk. We, we, we use the word deacon a lot. And deacon is derivative of this word, deaconos. That's the word that Paul would use when he would define leadership in God's kingdom, in God's people, in God's eyes. What it looks like to lead isn't the people who have achieved the most, the people who have separated themselves from the crowd. No, it's the people who are racing to the back of the line, the people who are bringing the food and making sure that everybody else has what they need, whose focus is the other. That's what leadership through God's eyes would look like. Nothing about personal progress or me being elevated. It's a display of humility to work towards the needs of another. Second word uh, that, that uh, Mark would use here, that Jesus would use that Mark would write, is the word doulos. Uh, this word uh, speaks of the slave, someone whose uh, entire livelihood and purpose is determined for them by another. Jesus says, whoever wants to be the first must be a slave of all people. That word never has a positive connotation. I've never heard anyone like, yeah, I'm a slave. Except for Paul later on, but he was very spiritual. But that's just not our natural position, is it? Our posture is not to forget what I need to get accomplished. They matter. Ah, ask yourself when was the last time you genuinely felt I ask myself when was the last time I genuinely felt that. But these are the two words Jesus uses. To be a slave is about attributing all this worth and attention and value to the other. And, and slave and servant have a very beautiful connection where to be a servant would speak of the work that we do. To be a slave would speak of our posture, our status, our position. And Jesus' model is calling leadership to assume a status and to do a work that involves, that is primarily focused on the other. It's strong language. And I think Jesus knew that when he said it. He was trying to make a strong point. He uses slave and servant to communicate the mark of humble relationships. Keyword, humble relationships. He's helping his disciples see that greatness and leadership look a lot more like positioning oneself in a way that serves the good of the other and less like the early bird gets the worm, running to the front of the line, or calling shotgun. It's, it's, 
And I love that we have this story right after the, um, the rich young ruler. Pastor Ellison hit on a point last week about you know, how we want to inherit eternal life. We want to enter into that greatness that has, God has waiting for us. And, and Jesus confuses this guy by talking about uh, how eternal life is built off of uh, your relationship with, your, with the others. Somehow that's just as important. And it makes me think that Jesus' whole idea of us becoming Christian and us getting saved you know, it, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense if it's, if it's about us, if it's all about us and our personal journey. It's actually incompatible. Like, why would he, why would we get saved and then we're still here? Why, why, why are we still here if we're already believers? If our future is already secure, what's the point of being here? It's not by accident. He didn't, like, forget. No, it, he's left us here with a bunch of other people with a bunch of neighbors, with a bunch of one another's to serve, to become the slave of, to, to elevate, to push forward, to work for their well-being. He's got a reason for you existing with other people. It's not by accident. And it makes me wonder, like, we have to get to a place where our eyes are on the other. Because a lot of times our eyes aren't, they're on us. They're on me and my close friends or me and my people or me and my family. We really care about the well-being of us and our family. I really believe Jesus would look at us and say, not so with you. It's not just about you and your family, you and your kingdom. In his kingdom, we are wired, we are created to be a people whose posture and work prefers the other, whose position and whose work benefit those out there more than me. He's called us to be humble leaders, to be in humble relationships. And humility is that key. So when we think about how do we take this concept of being a slave and being a servant and all of that stuff and apply it into our worlds, all right, two things for us. The first thing starts like this, choosing humility. Just choose to be humble. Humble is a hard thing to do. But the humble leadership is the type of leadership that actually has the deeper life-changing impact. Jesus knew about that when he called us to the posture, that we would have a drive to want to succeed and really care about us and our people and really... And it's not even that we're doing it because we're mean people. Like, I want to clarify something. It's not just like, oh, we just hate other people. No, we just get so focused on us and us and us. Jesus is like, look out. There's other people around. Think about them. Consider where they are. That's the kind of leadership he's called us to be, and that's Jesus' model. And his way can only be done if we're secure in who we are in Christ, when we have nothing to prove. There's this quote I want to read to us that I found just very beautiful, and it'll show up again at some other point in the sermon. It says this, Blessed is the man or the woman who can sincerely and gladly rejoice when others are exalted, but they themselves is overlooked and passed by. I'll read it one more time. Blessed is the man or woman who can sincerely and gladly rejoice when others are exalted, though they themselves be overlooked and passed by. That kind of leadership is cross-carrying leadership, putting the needs of others as priority. And that's only possible when you choose the humble path. And our leadership will have the ability to go down this countercultural road of others focused, others first, by choosing humility. 
I think the temptation is that when we, we, we end up focusing on ourselves and measuring up to um, a metric that's ever-changing in our world, and I think that's what actually perpetuates the rat race. Like, we're trying to become the best at this, but awesome in 2011 is different than awesome in 2015, which is different than awesome in 2022. Like, greatness keeps changing. The, 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 it's not in our favor to chase those things. It, it keeps moving. It indeed becomes an actual rat race. And God is calling us out of that mentality, out of chasing the ever-changing system. Instead, by choosing humility, he's calling us to look at the other people. Look at their worth. You know, he died for you, but he also died for them. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his blood being spilled is for the person next to you, as well as you. That's something we have to remember. That gives our neighbor and those around us an inherent, limitless worth and value. They're, the image of God is breathed into them as much as it's breathed into us. And I think by changing, by, by seeing things through this perspective, Jesus' model will change the way that we see people. It will no longer have that distorted, what can they do for me? How do they potentially help me progress? What ways does this benefit me? And it can just be about them. Just be about their good. This is the change that his model takes us through. This is where influence becomes, has a maximum impact. Jesus' model is, is just as much about influence as the world's model. But he approaches it from a completely different angle. See, true influence is not lording it over others. It's, it's not viewing our neighbors as our competitor. It's not just looking out for me and my best friends and my family. No, true influence is serving others so that they might become more. I love that Jesus in this passage gives us this great theoretical concept and then he ends it really beautifully by giving us a good example. He says the son of man, the king, God, the one who created everything, the one who everything belongs to, the Christ who is preeminent above everything, the firstborn of all creation, that guy came to serve and not to be served. Like he gives us a beautiful example of what humility in servant leadership looks like. And Paul would actually echo, and not just echo, he would expand this concept in Philippians 2 where he would say that Jesus did not see his godness, his divine right. He did not look at himself in this space of I'm equal with God. He actually put that stuff to the side. He did not take, I think the very words, he did not take equality with God as something to be grasped. He wasn't looking for advantages for him. He's looking for advantages for you. So instead, he emptied himself. He put it to the side and he took on the form of a servant. And then Paul pushes it forward. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. For what? To make a point? Uh, but so that we might be reconciled to God. Like his leadership his servanthood and his slavery impacts you. It's the reason that we can be here and be close and near to God. It's the reason that we can have eternal life. It's the reason for our whole faith. What he did, assuming the lowest position possible, is how we were able to make it forward. 
That's his example of leadership. Counting the neighbor as more important. Paul would continue in Philippians. He would say, um, he would challenge us to do nothing out of selfish ambition, to not just focus on ourselves, but to look at the interests of others, not just our own, to take that mindset that Christ had in his humility. And we should use that in how we engage with others in leadership and in serving roles, becoming a servant to others. Jesus is changing, he's not, he's not changing leadership. He's just showing us how to do it the right way and actually the most impactful way that the world's ever seen. And in him, we have a model of humble leadership, a posture of humble relationships, a leader who serves the growth of others and the betterment of them and chooses humility. And there's a second way that I wanna encourage us. So we choose humility as the first thing. The second thing is, I want us to see how we can embrace this Jesus model in our prayer lives. Um, now, I pray, the pastor, I pray, um, and I would say I'm not like the best prayer, like I can't just pray for like five hours straight, like the super, super, super spiritual people, but I have realized, I have noticed that when life throws everything at me, in those moments where, yeah, it's hard, where I hurt, where I don't know my way out, where I'm at a breaking point, whew, I can pray, y'all, I can pray real good, pray for a long time. And I can fervently, hands and knees, like God, I can call out to God, I can cry out to God, I can get real serious in my prayer. It is passionate, it is continuous, it is that praying without ceasing that Paul talks about. I think we can all find ourselves in that situation as well. When the moment is right, when something isn't going right, when it's dire, when it's life or death, man, we can pray that God will heal us, that he will help us, that he will help our best interests move forward. So here's my challenge. This week, Pray, pray for something that doesn't impact you at all. Try that. Pray fervently, pray passionately, pray without ceasing for someone that's not in your circle. I'll push it further. Pray for someone that's not in your family. Pray for something that doesn't actually benefit you at all. I mean, imagine what a week of God's people doing that would look like. Imagine what our perspective would look like. I wonder if we challenge ourselves to pray for others, we probably would talk to others, we'd actually know what's going on in their lives. It would domino into us actually being a good neighbor. Oh, the Bible's connected, it's beautiful. But challenge yourself. It's, it's gonna be a challenge for me too. It's not just, I'm not just saying you guys do it. I'm gonna be doing this as well. Pray for something that doesn't directly benefit me, that gives me no profit. Man, then I can begin seeing the value in people with a love that prefers the other. And I think this is the way that, that we actually bring about change in our city. After what we experienced over the past few years, blue, yellow, COVID, and like, don't talk to people and being scared of everybody, and still just the natural tendency of Hong Kong's rat race to the top and to more and more and more, the way we heal is not by looking at individual interests. The way we heal is by healing together. Um, I am an African-American. This is not in my notes, I apologize. Um, I just wanna give an example because this is really big. There's something in um, black American culture that is pretty dominant. Um, we, you'll hear people talk about the idea that you haven't made it until you brought everybody else with you. 
And it's this idea that maybe you started rags to riches or started in rags and you made it to riches, but just because you made it to riches and they aren't also being elevated, you've not made it to anything. Like, could we seek the betterment of Hong Kong as a whole, of our neighbors and not just us? Can we want them to make it just as far as we make it? Like, man, that would be something if the church is full of people who really, really want to see the better for the others. I think the healing that God's going to bring in our city is going to look like that. Again, not by everyone looking at their own interests, but looking towards the interests of one another. The healing God will bring will come in the humility of God's people. And so church, may we never forget, based off of Mark 9 and 10, what greatness looks like. It doesn't consist about being an admiral or a general or a statesman or having certain things or an artist. It consists of devoting ourselves, body, soul, and spirit to the blessed work of making our fellow men and women more holy and more happy. So may we mourn with those who mourn. May we celebrate with those who are actually celebrating. In humility, may we bear one another's burdens. As Galatians says, may we outdo each other in serving one another. May we seek, or may the greatness we seek be the progress of our neighbor. And may this be how we live, influencing the relationships, impacting one another. And I want to take the next couple of minutes uh, just to reflect a little bit. So the band's going to come up and get up on stage. And I know the, you know the usual run of things. The band comes up. We start getting like, okay, time to go. Please don't just run out. Like they're going to come up. They're not going to sing. They're just going to play for a minute. But we're going to have a little reflection time. And, and when I finish, I'll pray. And I want you to just stay seated. Don't get up and sing. Don't raise your hand yet. Just sit and think and ask God. Like, I don't just want to go through the motions of, okay, sermon's over, let's sing and let's go home. And I think God has much more for us than that. Maybe you're here today and the Holy Spirit is pointing at something in your life. I want us to reflect on that. Maybe God is calling you to consider your relationships, not just the ones with your friends, but with everybody else. He's asking you whether or not your relationships are transactional. Have you positioned yourself in any degree as a servant or a slave? I know those are hard words. It's convicting, not just for you, it's convicting for me. It's my second time preaching it. It's still convicting to me. And conviction really isn't known to feel good. Um, But conviction does lead us to growth. Uh, And that's exactly what I think God wants to do. He's putting his finger on these things and, and in that, He's calling us to bring it to him. Bring him the relationships where you feel you weren't cared for. The leadership spaces where you felt like you were just used for your talent and then discarded. Or where you felt like the other person's life and success was of more value than yours. Where you've been personally impacted and hurt by that. I wanna create a time where we can actually reflect and bring that to God. Bring bring him the times where you have felt hurt from leaders having their own interest at heart. And I believe that as we do that, he will speak life, value, limitless worth back into who you are. I think there's there's a second side of this coin. There are those of us who uncomfortably, but if we were to be even more honest with ourselves, we'd say maybe 
we were the ones that made another feel that way. Maybe our leadership has done that to people. Maybe we've lorded it over those that we lead, those that we're just in relationship with. We somehow see ourselves because of what we've accomplished as we never say it out loud, but a bit more important, more special, more valuable. Our management styles only benefit ourselves and we're only working for our own progress. The way we lead our families might be for our own interest. I, I don't, God doesn't come to condemn us, right? There's still no shame in this house. That wasn't just true before the sermon. It's still now, there is no shame in this. Probably a lot of us that can identify in certain ways with that. But this is the thing about God. He, he, he points his finger there and he draws you close if you'll let him. He's not drawing to condemn you. God's gentle. God's forgiving. Just ask. This is easy. How great is that? Just ask. And in his gentleness, as he draws you out, his spirit will start to speak, will start to reveal, will start to clean out some of the things that we need to get removed from us in order to live like he's called us to live. God is loving, guys. He's gentle. And in this response, I just challenge you to focus on that. Let him do what he wants to do. Let his spirit speak where it wants to speak. And so I'm gonna pray, but stay seated. Don't get up. Don't leave. Don't start worshiping. Reflect. Give yourself some time. Sit with this. Jesus, you are... As Carla said, you are the, the best shepherd. Uh, you are the perfect example. Um, and we, we're grateful for who you are. We're also grateful that you are gentle, ah, that you love us, that you're not, that you don't condemn us, God, that there's no shame in you, but there is reconciliation to be found in you. There is restoration and wholeness and a making of us becoming new. And so God, we come before you this morning acknowledging where we have fallen short as your people, where our focus has been on us so much more than it's been on those around us, where our lives and direction is all based on our success and our progress. God, we ask you to remove from us the things that make us self-centered, that make us seek our own greatness, God, and replace it. Give us a pure heart, a heart that sees value in our neighbor, a heart that will allow us to look towards the interest of the other, that will care for the other, the way that you did through the example of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and speak in this moment while we make space for you. Amen.